So that when the chapter began, Saul is breathing out murderous threats and the people of God are running for their lives. And when this part of the chapter ends, the church is starting to grow in number. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're greatly encouraged. And you got to ask yourself, what happened in between those two things? The answer is conversion. God has the power to change people's lives, sometimes suddenly, but usually it, it takes longer. Sometimes it takes years, but God has the power to change people's lives, but he almost never does it alone. Some years ago, I was, uh, uh, I, I should just start with a disclaimer. I was born and raised in Michigan, so I'm a huge University of Michigan fan. Dude, that was pretty underwhelming, man. <laughs> so I said this in the first hour, and somebody came up afterward and admitted it quietly in the front. By the way, I am too. When, oh gosh, like he was an addiction or something, you know. Uh, and so uh, I made that very clear to the congregation uh, early on and, and have suffered the abuse as a result of that. And one of our members, Joe Wirt, uh, is a huge Notre Dame fan, and he has had, had not missed a, a Notre Dame home game for 51 years. So huge Notre Dame fan. But as a Michigan fan, you have two least favorite teams, Ohio State, which is this, and then somewhat lower is Notre Dame. Uh, but they're not at all on my radar or my wish list. And uh, so Joe decided I should go to a Notre Dame game, and he got the tickets and took me up. They were going to play the Maize and Blue, and I was super excited to see this. We got there early, got out, walked through the parking lot, did the kiosks, did the games. From there, went into the Hall of Fame, and from the Hall of Fame, went to the front gate, stood in the columns and watched the band file through the columns into the stadium. And then we went into the stadium. We started taking our seats up in about 30 rows back, and people began to sing, and they were chanting these little traditions that Notre Dame has. And a strange thing happened to me, you guys. I started hating Notre Dame a little bit less. Then, partway through the game, when Notre Dame went farther ahead and everyone is cheering and shouting, I found that it didn't have quite the animosity that I had, even though we were getting beat and beat soundly. In the car, on the way home, Joe and I were talking about Notre Dame football, and I started complimenting it. And then, about Tuesday of that week, when I was alone, I found myself humming Three cheers for old Notre Dame. Now, Joe thought I got saved. The Michigan fans thought I was demon-possessed. I thought I was schizophrenic. But I walked away from that experience with a deeper appreciation for the power of community. If you're in a crowd and everybody is engaged and they're full of energy doing the same thing, you show up early, you take in all the traditions, you sit next to someone like Joe who is just up to his neck in that tradition. It is hard not to change your sympathies. Now, I know you think you could do it, but I don't think you could. I talked to someone this week who was a Notre Dame fan and went to a LSU game, and the same thing happened to him. Talked to another person who was an IU fan, went to a Michigan game, and the same thing happened to him. Now, that I can understand. It happened to him just when he got inside of 110 
thousand people all doing the same thing with deep traditions, sitting next to fanatics in this. And I started to wonder, what is the power of community to change a person's life, their sympathies, their loyalties, their vision, even their behaviors? Is it that powerful? And if it is, what separates good communities from great ones? Are great ones doing things that we don't even know about and would never try, but they do them religiously? And what influence does that have on the people in that community? And how do those people change the community itself. Religion in America is an individual sport. In the church, we speak of a personal relationship to Jesus Christ. We have private devotions, closets of prayer, one-on-one evangelism. 80% of us in the room believe or claim that a person should work out their religious beliefs apart from any church or synagogue. If you go to Japan and ask an individual, what is your religion? They will look at you confused. We don't have Ask them, what is their family's religion? Now they know what you mean. And theirs is the same as their family. But we in America consider that a flaw. It's almost a passage of right, isn't it? To get to a certain age where we can make decisions for ourselves and mostly by ourselves. But if community is a powerful engine for spiritual growth and transformation, shouldn't we think about them a little differently? Conversion happens through community. There is one conversion experience in the Bible that kind of rises above all the others. It's the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. In fact, so popular is this story, we've borrowed the language We speak about road to Damascus experiences. We speak about being blinded by the light. Uh, We speak about being knocked off our horse. And all of these are phrases that are lifted from this story of Saul's conversion. But when I read it again, I noticed it has two halves. And I noticed that we're really vocal about the first half, almost silent about the second. In the first half, Saul is on his horse on the way to Damascus. He's persecuting the church. He's got an entourage of soldiers. When he gets there, he'll arrest them and haul them off in chains to Jerusalem where they will be tried. While he is nearing Damascus, he is suddenly blinded by a great vision in the sky. Nobody knows for sure what he saw, but if you go back to the Old Testament and read some of the visions that the prophets saw there, you start to get an idea. Ezekiel, for instance, said that he saw four living creatures, each 
standing next to wheels that were spinning, and above the creatures was a large expanse, and above the expanse, he says, was one like a man. And when I looked up, the top half of his body was like glowing metal, and the bottom half of his body was like fire. And his eyes were blazing torches, and when he opened his mouth, these are Ezekiel's words, it was the sound of a multitude. It was quite a vision. Here was one individual with the voice of many. And when I saw it, I went straight over on my face. And he said to me, do not be afraid. Daniel saw almost the same thing. He was begging God for something for nearly three weeks. Suddenly, he said, I looked up and there was one like the Son of Man. And we don't even know what that is at that point. But he said, and as he stood before me, his eyes were like flaming torches. And his body was like chrysalis stone. And his arms were burnished bronze, and he spoke, and as he spoke, I went over on my face as though dead. Why say this? Well, it's to say that if that is something what Saul got vision of, he, he did not see the sun or a stroke of lightning, you guys. He saw something that was overwhelming. There's a lot of talk about wanting to see Jesus touch him. Shoot, sometimes I don't. Because everyone that did wasn't standing by the time it was over. So it's this powerful, arresting, overwhelming moment where a person is confronted with Jesus Christ. And you know what? Every time that happens, it'll rattle you. You always walk away from that encounter talking about Jesus. You don't talk about other things. You can't. And you never walk away from that full of convictions about how bad other people are. The only person you can see is yourself. And it's humbling. As Jesus said, you, you can't notice the speck in someone else's eye. Because you see the plank in your own. So all you want to talk about is how big he is and how unworthy you are in the moment. You, you, you hearing the difference? We're hearing from a lot of people that maybe yet haven't been arrested by Jesus. Saul is knocked off his horse. He goes blind. When he opens his eyes, he still can't see. So his soldiers take him by the hand and they lead him by the hand into Damascus. But when he goes into Damascus, he's still blind. He still can't see. He still doesn't know who the person is who spoke to him. All he heard was, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul's whole religion raised in the Hebrew scriptures, not only in the language, but in the rules of interpretation by the time he was 
five years old. By the time he was 10, he would have been schooled in the Pharisaic, the rabbinical, and the legal traditions. By the time he was 11, they would have sent him off to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel. That was like one of the elite university settings I guess. And by the time he was 13, he would have been bar mitzvah, a son of the commandment, and given full rights in the, to the Jewish community. This was not an irreligious man. This was a man steeped in religion who knew everything about their God until he met him. And when he met him, there was this moment where he passed from knowing things about God to knowing God. And there are no language for that. So he goes into Damascus, still blind, still doesn't know much about this Jesus person. And God introduces him to a cast of characters we hear almost nothing about. And this is the second conversion of Saul. In the first, he's encountering a man in a moment. In the second, he's encountering the people in a slow immersion. In the first one, he's sort of reconciled with God, but in the second one, he's reconciled with the people around him. So in the first one, he has strong loyalties now to Jesus Christ, but in the second one, he has strong affinities for the people who are the body of Christ. There's a lot of people like that in our church right now. I want to introduce you to four that came into Saul's life. The first is named Judas, and he's something like a safe person. Judas has a house on Straight Street. When they lead Saul by the hand, they lead him there, and he spends three days. He doesn't eat or drink, but I bet he's talking. And as he's talking, he's talking about what just happened to him. Now, we don't know whether that was the house he was going to anyway or not, but we know that Judas opened his house and took care of Saul's needs for three days. So here is someone that is non-judgmental, uncritical, open-sourced. They listen well. I have had people like this in my life. And when I'm in the presence of one, it always seems like, like I'm learning from me. Because their genius is that they know how to help you process. You can have thoughts you couldn't have without them. And yet, they always feel like your thoughts. And so it feels safe. They're not trying to change me. They have no agenda. They just love well. Do you know people like that? People without strong convictions. Or if they have them, they never share them. That isn't their job. They're not trying to convert you. They're just trying to take care of you. It'll come at its own speed. You need someone like that around you. Now, more than ever. Because I'm like you, the second I smell an agenda, 
I'm out. The defenses go up and I'm leaving. While he's in Judas's house, Jesus has appeared to an old guy named Ananias. Ananias has heard of Saul. And in a vision one night, Jesus says to Ananias, there's a fella on Straight Street in the house of Judas. You need to go see him. I want you to lay hands on him. Well, Ananias says, no, I don't think so. I know about this guy. He was sent here with orders to persecute people like us. And if you think that I'm going to go lay hands on that, I'm sure not going to look for him. If you think I'm going to lay hands on someone, let me say this very clearly, who is not welcome in this circle, you're crazy because I'm afraid of him and I don't like him and he doesn't deserve it and it won't change anything. So my role, Jesus, is to protect this body from people like that. It is not to go looking for people like that. Jesus says to him, go. <laughs> I love how Jesus counsels, go. I have chosen Saul to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to people you'll never meet. I need him. Go after him. Ananias obeys. He gets there, and with trembling hands, I imagine, he lays hands on Saul. And when he starts to pray for Saul, something like scales fall from Saul's eyes, and for the first time in three days, he can see. And then he prays that the Holy Spirit would come and settle on this arch enemy of the church. This is an odd moment because Saul's potential in his future is known by Ananias, but it is not known by Saul himself. Let me say that to you a little differently. Saul learns of his future not by looking inward and asking, what am I passionate about? He learns of it from someone else in the body. His potential is in there, them. It's not in himself. That's huge. So one of the people that you will need around you is someone like a prophet who hears God's voice in private, and when they hear it, they jump into obedience. Someone who can look into your soul and see things you can't see, and they'll call it out. God has put people like this in my life again and again. I've had confrontations and they're hard to hear sometimes. Steve, you were awful, but you're better than that. You can't let that happen again. Steve, this is the thing that you're really good at. When you do this, everybody wins. That didn't come from a survey and it didn't come from a self-analysis. It came from other people that were around me. It didn't come from me. 
When you do this, we win. And the moment I learned that, I was free for the first time to admit things I didn't do well. Up till then, I was faking all of it. But God sent in Ananias to see in me what I could not see and to call it out. And if you haven't met yours yet, I bet they're somewhere in this church. I know they are. After Ananias calls this out, Saul then moves into this small community of disciples who act as a kind of network. Because they are many and not one, they have tentacles all over the Damascus community. And so when there's a scuttlebutt conversation about killing Saul, they're the first to hear it. Because these people are everywhere. And when they hear it, they come back to Saul and they find him. They wait till night, put him in a basket, and then lower him outside the walls so he can get away. Somewhere in your life, you will need a small community of people to protect you. Sometimes from you but certainly from your enemies, because you have them. And these people will devote themselves to you. They will show you things about God that you cannot learn alone. And when they need to, they will jump into action, and they'll surround you and help you get away. Finally, as Saul runs off into Jerusalem, he meets another whole group of disciples, and they don't like him either. Last time he left Jerusalem, he did it with orders to either persecute or kill Christians, and so they're afraid of him. And uh, right about the time they're going to throw him out, Another guy named Barnabas, encouragement is what his name means. He gets in between this new convert and the people of God, and he brokers this relation. He acts as an advocate. He vouches for him. He puts his own reputation on the line so the people of God will believe in Saul because they need to. All right. That's the story. Can I tell you what it means? Quickly. First, we have a lot of people that have had the first conversions, never had the second. I believe God is active all the time, speaking to people, interrupting people, arresting people, overwhelming them, and changing their loyalties to Jesus Christ. And that can happen in moments. But unfortunately, those people do not always find strong communities with safe people and prophetic voices, a network of friends who are looking out for them and who are brokering their abrasive personalities with others around them. They can't always find them. And so a strange thing happens 
in religion in America. We have so many individual Christians because we don't have strong communities. They don't trust their communities. And the reason we have weak communities is because we have so many individual Christians. So you never know where to start, do you? Do you talk individuals to joining communities that may damage them? Or do you try to talk to communities about opening up to the souls in their life? You never know which. I believe that God is active changing people's lives with or without the church. The trouble is he can never finish it without the church. It can't happen. Sooner or later, he will need a body of people to finish the transformation process. And I believe that there are people in our community who have met God in private that the church could open itself to, but we're afraid of them and we don't like them and they don't deserve it and it isn't going to matter. There are souls out there who are as afraid of us as we are of them. One of my concerns in this post-COVID era that we're in is that um, the communities that we have formed are communities that we have formed. We chose everybody who is around us. No wonder it's such a safe and affirming community. What would we expect? We seem to be unable to hear from people who don't like us or from people we're not like. But people that God has sent in to the community. So what happens is communities protect themselves from infiltrators, they think, and the individuals protect themselves from the community. What we need are individuals who are willing to trust the voice of other people rather than start the conversation with their own convictions. Trust the open and frank discussion of the body of Christ. We need individuals who no longer see the body as a threat to their identity, but they trust the collective wisdom of many.
And we need communities that are open to people like Saul, who are not like them. And when they see something in them, they can call it out. They see greatness when the person himself cannot. And we need communities that are patient. And they don't try to convert everything in a day. So we're in a catch-22. I know of no way to break that except to change the question. If you found yourself asking a moment ago, why is it that I do not have a safe person, uh, a host, or a prophet, or a network, or an advocate in my life? Change the question and ask, who are you that for? You have to start there. If you come into the community to take something from it before you've put anything into it, it will go bankrupt. You will have to bring the very thing you want. So it will start with you. We are blessed in College Church with beautiful lives that are rich and deep. And what I want for every one of us is is an involvement that's more than just attendance. I want us to belong in the deepest sense of the word. But I want us to give as much as we take. So in order to help you process this, I've um, put three questions Uh, on the screen that I want to leave with you. And the way that we've done this in the last few weeks is that you will process this with others that are around you. Maybe this time you don't select that community. You just uh, see whoever's together at the time, and then you have a frank discussion about them. Who is in your community, and what have they taught you about God How has God used one of those four, a host, a prophet, a network, or an advocate at some time in your life? And finally, the one that I alluded to a moment ago, host, prophet, network, or advocate, which of these are you for someone else? we ought to be able to name them right now. We ought to know. To the extent that we do, may God help us to lean in. To the extent that we don't, may God humble us and help us to look out. Jesus, what I want now is more than a sigh or an exhale. And I want something that lasts longer than the next few moments. Please, would the same Holy Spirit that settled upon Saul and and did incredible things with that man's life, would you do a work in us? Take as long as you want 
use whoever you want. But do it, I pray, in Jesus' name.